Welcome, investors, to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, podcast listeners, to the Absolute Return Podcast. On today's show, we welcome veteran investor Jason Ader. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of Spring Owl Asset Management, an investment firm with a focus on the real estate, gaming, and lodging sectors. In addition, Jason is the CEO and chairman of SPAC 26 Capital Acquisition Corp. On the show, Jason discusses his path to Wall Street, including the clever idea that led to his lucky break, how he excelled as a top-ranked sell-side analyst at Bear Stearns, the unique aspects of the real estate and gaming sectors that make them attractive for investment, shareholder activism and turnarounds, advice for those starting out on Wall Street or those considering a career in investment management, and more. A point of disclosure, the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF holds shares and warrants of 26 Capital Acquisition Corp. And with no further ado, here's our podcast with Spring Owl Asset Management CEO, Jason Ader. Welcome, Jason, to the show today. Exciting to touch on casinos, gaming, lodging, these sectors that you've been in the investing business covering for many decades, first as a sell-side analyst and now on the investment management side. But before getting into all the investing that you're doing now, I was wondering, what was your path to Wall Street? What got you uh, into Brer Stearns back when you were a top-ranked analyst? What was your path there? Yeah, well, um, first of all, Julie and Michael, thanks for having me. Great to see both of you. You know, Julie, and uh, when I uh, was thinking about doing my third SPAC, you were my uh, first call to get a sense for the market. And thank goodness for your active Twitter account because <laughs> you keep me up to speed uh, materially better than all the investment banks and advisors that uh, purport to be experts in the SPAC space. So it's great to be on the show. Great thank to you hear. For having me. Yeah, great to have you. Excited to uh, chat today. Great, great. Well, you know, coming to Wall Street, you know, when I did, it was never something that um, I had expected. You know, I was, I always thought, you know, I'd be in the music industry, actually, I, you know, I, I had just the ability to hear a song and predict whether or not it was going to be successful. And you can imagine in the 90s, I would hear all these songs from Seattle and, you know, ended up being, you know, great uh, rock and roll bands. And I just figured I had a talent in A&R and thought that's probably where I would end up. And, and, and I had a summer job <laughs> one year on a on a trading desk, and uh, and it was summer job where basically um, you know I, I was I, my only role was to just get coffee for the traders <laughs> and and bring uh, and to bring faxes over from the fax machine when uh, they came in, um, and the traders were pretty rough. Like there were a few of them that would you know make me go back out multiple times because the coffee had either too much milk or too too little milk in it. Um, so that's how I made my start on Wall Street at the very, very bottom. And, and it's a great place to start, I think, for anybody. But I was sent down by the traders to hear um, the outcome of a trial that was happening in New York. And it's, it was an important trial because Time, Time Inc. and Warner Communications and Paramount were, were in the midst of a, a, 
a pretty uh, contested merger. And they wanted me to go and, and give them a call after it was over because the desk had a pretty big merger ARB uh, position in, uh, in that opportunity. And I got down there, there was hundreds of people, and I was really just a kid in my 20s who didn't know what I was doing and, uh, and uh, you know, took the six train um, to the courthouse from Midtown. And this, this really predates cell phones. So I'll date myself a little bit here. But I mean, there was, this was, you know, back in the day where there were some car phones in those big giant Gordon Gecko style phones that you remember from the original <laughs> uh, Wall Street movie. Like but a brick. Yeah. yeah, like the brick. So not too many people <laughs> had them, but I, but I, I got to the, the courthouse and uh, hundreds of people, um, everybody really well dressed up right out of a movie and three pay phones. And, you know, at the time I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to get out of there at, at the end of the court case. So I innocently hung an out of order sign on one of the three pay phones. <laughs> and so when it was approved by the judge that Time and Warner were going to merge and Paramount lost the bid, there was, as you can imagine, a massive line of, of trader assistants uh, waiting to make a phone call to the trading desks, except for that one phone that said out of order, which uh, I knew was working just fine. So I went to the phone, called up the traders, said, hey, guys, um, it's Jason. The uh, merger is complete, and Warner and uh, Time are going to merge. And that was really the last I thought of it, and just uh, humbly got my way back on, this, um, on the subway, took the six train back up to the office, and I walked in pretty much ready to go get everybody their afternoon coffees. Um, you know, the, the response was, well, how'd you get us that information so quickly? You know, and there was obviously a, a pretty material trading profit that I was responsible for because I got them, this was, you know, again, before the internet, before Twitter, and uh, explained, well, there were three phones and hundreds of people, and I put an out-of-order sign on the phone, and the firm <laughs> said, you're exactly the type of person we want working here, and we want to hire you as an analyst. The next day, I had a Bloomberg, an wow. office, and an assistant, and that's how I got to Wall Street. Yeah, that's all it takes is uh, some cleverness and a big P&L, apparently, with that. It reminds me of, I was invested in a contested M&A situation where the market wasn't sure which way the vote was going to go. And so I went to the vote, and I don't think we had much of a position, but I had, a re I had an email ready to go, and right when they said it was approved and I was in the room, I didn't have to use the phone. I just sent the email instantly, but we were first to market, sent it right to the trader, and we bought as much stock as we could. But uh, I like the cleverness and the merger arb sleuthing to get you in the door. So next thing you know, you're at Bear Stearns and the sectors you covered, casinos, gaming, and lodging as a sell-side analyst. Now, what attracted you specifically to equities research, and how did you excel in that role? Like Specifically, uh, you're a top-ranked by institutional investor for 10 years. So, um, you know, what attracted you to sell-side research and the analytical side, and how did you do so well in that role? Yeah, I mean, there was a couple steps along the way from that story to getting to Bear Stearns. An important one was uh, being hired by Ron Barron and, and, and Barron Capital when Ron was a, a much smaller firm. You know, Ron has been an amazing investor and very early in, in investing uh, with, with Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX now and has yeah. had an extraordinary success. But when Ron hired me and I was in business school at the time, it was between, you know, after I graduated college but was getting my uh, MBA at NYU, I thought Ron was such a smart analyst that um, in addition to, you know, 
feeling lucky that I was able to sit in his research meetings, I would write down every question Ron would ask. I mean, every single question and study those questions. And, um, you know, Ron was um, a leader in the gaming industry at the time. He was a very early investor um, in Golden Nugget, which was the predecessor company to um, you know, many of Steve Wynn's ventures. He was one of the first investors in, in MGM and just had a long history around gaming. So that helped a lot in terms of getting me into the gaming industry. And what happened before I got to Bear Stearns is Smith Barney uh, was looking for a gaming industry analyst. And every single sell-side analyst told Smith Barney to use me as a reference as to how good <laughs> they were. <laughs> and I, I never really thought about going on the sell side, but Smith Barney had reached out and they had just uh, merged with Shearson and wanted to hire me as a gaming analyst. And Ron Barron said, this is the best thing you could do for your career at this stage. You know, you're so young and you're going to you know, really learn a lot. Uh, <laughs> I hope you'll still take my calls, which of course I, I still, I did and, and, and still do today. And so, you know, going you know, from Barron to Smith Barney was, you know, an important step and, and working for Ron and really learning the gaming industry with him. And we saw a lot, you know, with Wynn Resorts and even Ron even sent me down to Mississippi uh, before there were riverboats um, to look at um, what was literally shrimp boats. I mean, these were shrimp fishing boats on the, on the Gulf that became casinos. But Ron was so early in investing in gaming that he knew that the shrimp boats were very likely to become big casinos. And so my job was to <laughs> live in the Holiday Inn in Gulfport and Biloxi, Mississippi, and figure out where which locations were going to be most profitable uh, for the firm. It was a great experience and, and a great way to really understand the gaming industry at, a, at an early time. And then uh, you obviously went to Smith Barney and, as you said, made institutional investor and, Bear, and, then, and then spent two years there before Bear Stearns hired me. And and Bear Stearns was a great place, and, and glad I had you know the, the experience there that I did as well. You built quite the track record there as an equities research analyst, and then you transitioned back to the buy side. What ultimately drew you back to the uh, investment management side of the business after you know making your mark uh, as an equities analyst? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved investing. I mean, I did it as a kid, just like I'm teaching my own kids to do it. I'm going to have a, a 15-year-old now who loves the stock market and he's, you know, investing. And I was really very much the same way. So you know, I started out on the buy side purposefully, um, took a detour on the sell side, um, and it was a, it was a great way to build skills and understand how the sell side works and have great access to companies with a platform like Bear Stearns or, or Smith Barney at the time. And, and even Barron, you know, we were able to, you know, get, you know, great information and, and talking to companies and learn how to speak to CFOs and managements of, of businesses, which ultimately I think, you know, has made me a, a better investor. So, um, you know, when I, when I left uh, Bear Stearns in 2003, the, the sell side was, was evolving. It was changing. It was, it was really, you know, right after the, uh, um, um, the settlement with the, the brokerage settlement with Elliot Spitzer on the role the research analysts could have. And it was confusing at the time, and it just seemed like a good time to go back to the buy side. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX, is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution 
providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies, and one easy-to-use, one-choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One-Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1CONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Yes, I assume that was Reg FD and the regulations covering, you know, the information that management teams can feed to sell-side analysts who would feed to institutional investors. And, you know, that whole system kind of got messed up. But in terms of your coverage area, real estate and gaming, you've covered it forever and obviously extremely knowledgeable. Now to more of a generalist investor or someone not too familiar with those sectors, what are some of the highlights that investors should know about it that made you so keen on these sectors in terms of the opportunity set? Well, um, first and foremost, I, I was attracted to the gaming industry because it was a growth industry at the time. And, 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 and then when you think about 90s, even through today, I mean, there's been, you know, the, the wave of growth that I was involved with was, was after Atlantic City. But before <laughs> riverboats um, and, and Native American casinos, and before the strip really became what it was today, I mean, there was it was right around the time of Excalibur opening, and that was like the big new property on the strip. And of course, you know, you go today, and it's, it's hard to believe how much you know has built been built um, since then. But um, there was two very significant waves of growth happening around the gaming industry, which attracts me as an investor, one of which was the Las Vegas Strip was about to tap into institutional capital. And the returns on capital for the Excalibur, if I remember, were um, 30% cash on cash returns. Wow. And that, you know, who, who wouldn't like that? Um, the returns in some of the riverboat markets were even better. There was there was a market in Mississippi, um, a, a place called Tunica, Mississippi, where there were six-month 100% payback on on capital. So so the the cash on cash returns 100% of your money back six months. Um, again, those, it's hard to find that in any business now. Um, and and that was just one state. And I, I felt you know Las Vegas Trip had a long way to go and 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 continues to <laughs> grow in in 2022. And you know Mississippi, Louisiana, Indiana, Iowa. Um, you know, just it was a very long list of states that um, allowed for expanded gaming, plus what was happening on the Native American casinos after the um, Mashantucket Pequot tribe in, um, in Connecticut was allowed to operate the, the Foxwoods Casino. So those, are, those were three, you know, very big waves of growth, all of which were generating real high cash-on-cash -cash returns. And so... From my perspective, it, it, it really just represented a great place for investors to be deploying capital and uh, one that was not really well followed. I mean, there were really two banks that were at the time, you know, sort of institutionally willing to be involved in the gaming industry. Of course, Mike Milken was a leader at Drexel and, and then Bear Stearns, you know, with Ace Greenberg uh, as a CEO had his own you know, relationship that sort of helped both those firms be uh you know, important um, source of, of investment research and, and capital um, to grow. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation because if 
you know, people looking to get into the business ask me, I always tell them to go to where there's growth and go to where there's opportunity and not much competition. Like Charlie Munger said, you want to fish where the fish are and not many other competing fishermen is how I view it. Now, your investment style goes well beyond just picking stocks and talking to management teams. You take a pretty active approach, have some experience in activism, board representation, uh, you know, really uh, hands uh, exceptionally involved in some of these situations at public companies. And I was wondering, uh, if you look back at uh, some of those super active investments, how do you use this lever of participation from a governance perspective and activist perspective to ultimately drive results from a performance perspective? I mean, I think from, from my perspective, the, the, the best approach is one that's, that's constructive. I, you know, I had a great eight-year uh, experience with uh, Las Vegas Sands as, as, a, as a director and you know really um i think worked you know very well with with management you know the board members at the time i joined the board it was right after the financial crisis the stock was um a little over four dollars and the company had um 10 times leverage and you know the the company needed to because of its leverage stop construction in macau and were a fair amount of questions about their ability to complete, you know, the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, which, you know, put up, you know, I think really great results last night, given it's just coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and so, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a company that had great assets that had been gone through, had gone through a tough time and shareholders had really suffered as a result of it. But, but my objective as a director, you know, as, uh, as a owner of the business was, to help management and, and share, you know, ideas with management that I thought would be towards the direction of building long-term shareholder value. And with Sense, it was great, you know, because you had a controlling shareholder who owned so much um, stock in the Adelson family. So they were totally aligned with um, the shareholders and creating value. And um, it, it was a big turnaround. It was a highly levered business that was close, very close to breaking covenants and indentures. But um, you know, it was one where you know management uh, worked very hard to unlock value by listing the Macau assets and, and using the proceeds to recap, refinance the company, and finish construction in Singapore. And six or seven years later, you know, the stock had gone from four to eighty. The balance wow. sheet had gone from ten times levered to under two times levered, and paid out more in dividends than the basis you know in the stock, the cost basis in the stock from when I joined, that's like, that to me is like the best case example in terms of engagement where, you know, you could have success and you could add value and, and sort of management the board, you know, it's totally aligned with the owners. doesn't always work out like that. Um, and, and in the case of IGT and, and, and BWIN and a few others where we've had to, had to seek a board representation, it was just, you know, a long, a great, usually a great business a business uh, whose stock price has f- fallen, you know, over a multi-year period, not just for like a quarter or two, but <laughs> over a one-year, three-year, and five-year basis, really underperformed the uh, peer group, the, the other peers in the sector, uh, where, you know, there was no real owner, you know, that that seemed to be stepping up to help the business. And uh, a management team that was resistant um, to engagement about ways to unlock value. So, so in the case of, of, of IGT and, and, and BWIN, 
Um, and there have been a few others where, where I've sought board representation. It wasn't my first choice, but, you know, in a lot of ways I felt, you know, I had no other choice given the, the deterioration in value. And, and, and of course, both, both those companies ended up um, working out much better for shareholders with shareholder representation. Both companies got sold at big premiums. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, the key is, is to just always be working for the shareholders. Um, you know, managements forget that. Boards often forget that too. Now, in terms of these turnaround investment situations, you hear mixed opinions. Someone like you know Warren Buffett, for example, he, I, I believe he said the thing about turnarounds is they rarely turn around, meaning that you know he has no interest in those. Perhaps he's just too old and can't be bothered and wants wants an easy life. Because I understand how much work goes into these, but clearly you've had success in getting involved with struggling businesses or perhaps those going through some challenges at cyclical lows. You mentioned Las Vegas Sands, IGT, BWIN. What attracts you to turnaround investment opportunities specifically, and what goes into the process of attaining a successful result in one of these campaigns? Yeah, so turnarounds are a lot of work. I, I can see why um, you know Berkshire Hathaway would have that view. It's it's, it's certainly on you know you know extraordinary amount of time where the shareholders and management and board members, um, many of whom are quite skeptical and, and happy with the status quo. Um, but from my perspective, the only reason that I get involved in turnarounds is because there's a, I've identified a material disconnect with intrinsic value, which I conclude is mater- is higher <laughs> than where the stock price is trading. Um, in some cases, you know, I mean, in the case of Sands, it ultimately was 20 times higher than when I joined the board. I, it's not always that good, but but I you know certainly have seen you know three to five times potential upside over several years by unlocking value and, and, and aligning better the objectives of, of management with um, the shareholders. And I think Playtech is a, is a perfect example. What, you know, it was really very close to the bottom of the stock when me and another shareholder called a special meeting to put in a shareholder, I mean, a, a management compensation plan in place. Management didn't own any shares. They woke up every day and were focused on how much income they were going to make, not where the stock price was. And as soon as we put in a plan where management could really make millions and millions of pounds, because it's, it's trades in pounds, um, if the business grows and if the business is sold, and we, we, we tied the compensation based specifically on st- stock price appreciation, it was, it was like within a week of doing that, oh, the, the stock price miraculously started going up. So I'm, I'm all for... It's you funny know, how that works. Wake up. Yeah. We, the best thing manage, we, you could have as a shareholder where management wakes up every day and has an aligned interest with a higher stock price. Yeah, no doubt. And certainly every single public company shareholder that resonates with now in terms of, you know, looking back at many of your investments. You mentioned Las Vegas Sands was a huge win. Uh, 20 Bagger and Playtech was also a huge win. Is there anyone specifically that stands out where it was a memorable investment from a, a positive standpoint? You know, you've, you've mentioned, you know, some of, you know, some of the uh, ones that, that stand out to me, you know, best, you know, it was a really incredible experience to be in the boardroom of uh, Sheldon Adelson, you know, watch him go, you know, from, you know, very wealthy to top in the world. He was an incredible visionary. I mean, he has built, you know, he has changed Macau forever, changed the Singapore skyline forever, changed Las Vegas to a large extent. You know, mo- most most operators 
laughed at him when he wanted to create an all-sweet uh, product in Las Vegas for Monday through Thursday. Because, of course, during those years, you made all your money on the weekends, but, you know, understood the convention and meetings business and uh, was, a, was, a, was a visionary, you know, here in the U.S. and, and in Asia. And, you know, for somebody who you know, has such a big picture view, he had very strong opinions on the paint in the rooms and the color of the carpets and the taste of the food in the restaurants. And I think that's that's what it takes, you know, to, to achieve, you know, such a high level of success, not just be, you know, a visionary to the big picture, but be very involved in the details, you know, that make up day to day. So it's, ra- it's rare, you know, to have an experience like that. But uh, Sands is a great company. They have really, you know, premier assets. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to watch, you know, some of the pictures out of China, you know, on the news these days. But when things open up there, like like they have here, and whenever that is, you know, uh, at some point it will happen in the future, the demand for the Macau business, I think, is just going to be, you know, unprecedented. And they're very well positioned because they've, you know, they've got the premium assets for the mass market, for the premium mass market, which I think is is the best segment for for Asia. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, quite a bit of success uh, within your track record. Now on the flip side, you know, every investor has, um, you know, an asset that doesn't play out as they expect. Any specific investment that didn't work out as you planned and any uh, key lessons learned with respect to that one? Well, I think about that a lot, of course, and, and there's a long list of, 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 of lessons, you know, that one would have as an investor for, for over, you know, over 25 years. Um, I know exactly the period at which, you know, I tend to underperform. It's, it's like exactly in the period that we're in right now when, you know, business fundamentals don't really matter, where the world gets focused on geopolitical and, and sort of macro-based issues like a war in the Ukraine, like right. oil prices, you know, li- like in, you know, you know, sort of unprecedented, you know, change, you know, in, in, in um, you know, foreign exchange sort of like what we're seeing happen, you know, you know, in Japan right now. So I have enough experience to know that that's the moment at which I'm very likely to underperform on a short term basis. And it's, it's just, you know, critical, because I'm not I'm not a trader um, at all. You know, they're, they're I have very low portfolio turnover, very low, you know, individual turnover. Um, I stay, you know, focused on the prize. And I'm, and I'm fortunate, you know, I have an investor base that's, you know, less caring about you know, monthly returns and quarterly returns, that makes it hard. You know, the, the, many fund managers do have, you know, to focus on that. And, and they're very good at, you know, managing, you know, volatility over a short periods of time. For me, I, I think about, you know, the investments much more like a private equity manager, but I know on a, on a short to intermediate term basis, the periods where the world is just is is really concentrated on what's happening in Russia, what's happening with fuel prices, oh my God, commodities, supply chain issues in 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 China. When will we be able to get things? Labor costs, labor costs. You know, when you try running a hotel these days. I mean, it's hard to hire people. I mean, in some of the hotels that you know we're, we're involved with, we're paying now twenty five an hour, twenty five dollars an hour for wow. for front desk. It was eighteen dollars last year. But the pool of workers has shrunk because nobody wants to drive more than an hour because of the cost of fuel. And, uh, um, you know, though there's a lot for the market to be focused on, but that's as an investor, again, that's, 
that's going to be what wins the day over the short term with stock prices versus whether or not, you know, we achieve, you know, the 2022 or 2023 revenue and cash flow budgets. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers with a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. And you've certainly been able to make a structure for yourself and, and your assets that, that you're not at the whims of uh, some of those short-term price movements. And so moving just to the other side of, of some of your business, you, you are involved in a SPAC 26 capital um, that's currently in the process of completing um, its initial business combination with Okada Manila. Can you talk a little bit about the thesis for that company in particular? Sure, sure. So um, 26 Capital is actually my third SPAC. I was, I wouldn't say a pioneer, but but was involved as a SPAC sponsor in, in uh, 2007, 2008, uh, which was a very different time in the SPAC market. Um, you know, it was a fraction of the size relative to what it became, you know, last year and the year before in what I'd call the, you know, the SPAC bubble of uh 2020, uh, 2021, we, you know, certainly know the gaming industry and some of the most successful um, SPAC transactions were in the online gaming space. Um, I have to say with DraftKings right at the, right at the top of, of the food chain. Um, and, and that's just, you know, it was a great business and, and, and it was executed well via the SPAC structure. And so I started to get um, as you can imagine, a fair amount of inbounds from some really interesting private companies that had said to me, Jason, we're, we're, we really want to go public. Um, two or three SPACs have called us. It's not, a right, it's not the right fit. <laughs> We'd like to go public through your SPAC. And this didn't happen once. This happened several times and I didn't have a SPAC. So this was really when, you know, uh, Julian, I reached out to you and, and pick your brain a little bit, you know, about, you know, landscape, um, because after, you know, it's been on the bench for um, several years, you know, wanted to, you know, understand, you know, some of the dynamics. But we've had a longstanding relationship with with Cantor, and, and I think they've got a very good SPAC uh, practice. And so, um, you know, we raised a SPAC with a board that had expertise in gaming, um, I think most people would have expected 26 Capital to do something in online gaming because we had been very, we'd been, you know, been owner of Playtech, which is a well-known online gaming company. We've been an owner of uh, Stars Group, which uh, is a well-known online gaming company. Owns a Poker Stars brand and Skybet, and uh, and my board consists of Rafi Ashkenazi, who was the CEO of, of Stars Group. And when he was running Stars Group, it was the largest publicly traded online gaming company in the world. And once we, we raised our funding, um, you know, and, and this was um, at the beginning of 2021, um, we looked at every deal in online gaming. And the 
price inflation was extraordinary. And, and <laughs> we now see that in, in the price declines of virtually every single online gaming company, including DraftKings, some of which yeah. have, have fallen you know, precipitously. Um, I just didn't want to, you know, I just, it just didn't make sense to me relative to where I thought, you know, the businesses could be to sort of rewind to what attracted me to the gaming to begin with, which was the high uh, cash on cash returns and, and, and online sports betting. It's just not, achieving profitability anytime soon. DraftKings virtually you know, loses money weekly, um, in some cases loses money daily. So to pay a premium for that with so much competition, you know, ended up just not making sense. And, you know, when I stepped back and, you know, looked at all the opportunities and we looked in video games and we looked at technology and we looked at payment processing and um, travel, my general view is that the Asian gaming market is extraordinary. And it's underserved. You know, it's very limited. You know, number of places where you can go and experience uh, integrated resort throughout Asia, and um, that there was a, there were there were about a year or two behind the U.S. in terms of vaccines and, and recovery from the pandemic. So, you know, we ended up getting. You know, I think you know it would be a great opportunity with Okada Manila to buy a business at a at a discount to construction cost at a discount to replacement cost and really create for investors an opportunity to invest in post-pandemic recovery in Asian travel, tourism, and gaming in a way that doesn't have the Macau exposure in a balance sheet, you know, that's virtually, you know, unlevered. I mean, the, the, the pro forma company will have very low levels of debt relative to the peers. So we're excited about it, you know, um, and, and we, you know, I would encourage, you know, the listeners, you know, this podcast to look at our public filings, but that's sort of how we we got to where we are today. And uh, I think that uh, yes, the COVID, you know, albeit you know, has been real frustrating to parts of Asia. As I look out over the next several years, you know, I'm real hopeful that uh, we see numbers like we saw last year in Las Vegas. People don't realize that 2021 in Las Vegas was absolute peak year for revenues, EBITDA, with no business travel, no convention business, just what they're calling um, revenge travel, people <laughs> getting out and wanting to, to, to get out after the, the pandemic. So as sure as I'm sitting here, I don't know exactly when that's going to be. I'm hopeful it's next year, maybe 2024, that there will be revenge travel in the um, Asian markets, including the Philippines and including Macau. And you know the companies that are in that market should be well positioned. Yeah, and I think it's great that you looked to, with your initial business combination, you really looked to provide a differentiated exposure, not just following after the same macro um, thesis as some of the other gaming uh, SPACs. I think that's awesome. When you look at the SPAC market, this is your third SPAC. There was some time in between. Now you're reacquainting yourself with the SPAC market. Where do you see it moving forward? I think so. I, I do think the SPAC market is uh, very interesting. Create and and the SPAC structure for me, I, I really like because I'm creative and and I think you know you can sort of think of it as a whiteboard and you can solve for everything you know and 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 sort of help a company achieve its its capital goals. Um, it the, just a, a lot of sponsors came to market trying to be the next you know DraftKings or trying to be bring the next business that. Um, could look like SpaceX or could look like a, you know, a flying car business or could look <laughs> like Tesla and, and, and just sort of, you know, 
we were in a market, you know, with a lot of liquidity and, and the valuations in those businesses really got bid up um, to levels that, um, you know, were, you know, extraordinary. I mean, and, and so um, that will have to sort itself out because there's still quite a number of SPACs looking for deals. But, the, you know, a year from now, we're, you know, many of them uh, will have been past um, the date at which, you know, they're re- required to turn, return their capital. Um, but I, I could see ourselves doing another SPAC after we get over the hump of the capital that's that's out there searching now, um, and and reverting as a you know as a SPAC sponsor to a market that may be ten to fifteen percent of the peak size, but very consistent with the size that we saw in two thousand nineteen, two thousand eighteen, two thousand seventeen. You focused on bringing businesses that were not dependent upon the pipe market that not that we're not looking to be, you know, sort of high priced venture capital, but solving for other, you know, alternative you know, ways for businesses to go public. So it'll be interesting to play out. Of course, nobody knows, but, but obviously the regulators are keenly focused on this area right now. And, and there's a lot of sponsors willing to make virtually any deal right now. So I'd prefer to be on the sidelines until that works itself out. That makes a lot of sense because clearly the market is oversupplied and there's increasing regulatory pressure and so much competition with all these short dated SPACs looking to complete a deal prior to their deadlines. It'll be super interesting to see how that plays out. Now, with respect to your decades of experience on Wall Street, touching many segments, sell side, buy side, SPACs, activism, active investing, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial ventures in the capital markets as well. Now, if you know a young person or even your young self who's considering a career in music then got convinced of the capital markets, what sort of advice would you consider those early in their career or looking to break into Wall Street? Well, um, it's a great question. And, and Wall Street is... is found it quite difficult, as you know, to attract talent. You know, there's, there's a lot of talent now um, going into, into ESG-related businesses and tech-related businesses. And I love that you know, this younger generation, you know, is focused on big ideas to save the world and save the planet and do good. Um, just it wasn't necessarily part of the narrative 20 years ago or, 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 or before that. And so um, you're seeing the, the, the investment firms sort of move towards, you know, those shared objectives. But the reality is we live in capitalist society, fortunately, and, uh, and great businesses need capital and they um, eventually, you know, need to either go public or find financing before an IPO or need, you know, debt financing to achieve, you know, their, their business objectives and business goals. So I think it's a great a great place to work, um, no matter what you want to do, you know, later in your life, I think for the, the opportunities that, that exist out in, in the marketplace today, most banks are hybrid, most private equity firms are hybrid now. So despite the request of some financial service uh, CEOs, I, I, I'm hearing, you know, that people are going in, you know, three days a week as opposed to five, and uh, it's still fairly flexible. Um, that should help. You know, in terms of recruiting, um, and and um, but but there's no doubt I would encourage anybody you know graduating you know with an interest in business to do whatever they can to get into a investment banking program 
even if your first job is getting coffee like mine was, <laughs> it's amazing what that can lead to and how many stories I've heard like mine where you're, you're just it's part of the fraternal process of coming to investment management and, and investment banking and private equity is you have to start at the bottom. And you certainly have earned your stripes in, in that sense. Uh, one, one last question is, you did mention that you had a little bit of an ear for 90s Seattle uh, rock bands. I do, I do have to ask, what is your favorite band? Well, I don't really like that music too much anymore, and I'm, I'm glad you're asking. Um, and <laughs> I think hopefully you'll appreciate it. You know, my wife and I, we love Drake. We've seen Drake okay. many times. We like the Raptors because of Drake, even though we are also fans of the Miami Heat now that we live in Miami. So I would put Drake at the top of the list. And it just so happens, you know, you guys are both Canadian. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you can appreciate his popularity uh, just about everywhere. Yeah, no doubt. Can't go wrong with October's very own. So Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, just um, you know, a ton of valuable wisdom. So thank you for sharing that with us and our listeners today. You got a lot of stuff going on at Spring L, 26 Capital, and all these ventures and investments that you're involved in. So looking forward to staying in touch and wishing you the best of luck. Great. Thanks, Julian. Thanks, Michael. Good to see you both. You as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.